This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Well, we are uh, approaching, fast approaching, the 21st anniversary of uh, the death of Lady Diana, uh, the former Princess of Wales, August 31st, of course, August 1997. Uh, She died as a result of injuries sustained in a car crash in the Elma Tunnel in Paris, France. Her companion, uh, Dodi Fayed, and the driver of uh, their Mercedes, Henri Paul, were pronounced dead at the scene. A fourth passenger in the car, of course, bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones, was seriously injured uh, but survived. Uh, my guest, Sarah Whalen, is a journalist and attorney. She taught law or has taught law as the Abraham Friedman Teaching Fellow at Temple University and won the New Orleans Press Club's Writers Prize in 2006. And her book is Royal Vengeance, The Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Sarah Whalen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm intrigued because uh, I'm not aware of uh, a lawyer actually um, approaching this subject and then writing a book, because as a lawyer, you're all about the evidence, right? That's correct. And, um, you know, a lot of lawyers tend to shy away from controversy, or some some lawyers embrace it. Uh, I think I go in the middle. I'm, I'm much more evidence-driven, but I, I had been following the Princess Diana saga before she died. And I also have a master's in history, and I was very interested in British royal history. So I'd follow that closely. And I actually, you know, I didn't have a psychic vision or anything, but I looked at the evidence after 
Princess Diana was interviewed by the BBC on the news show called Panorama. And I predicted that the royal family would kill her as a result of that interview. I mean, yeah, I made it half-joking, but I was quite serious. I said, you know, I don't think she's going to – she won't last a year. Because this was the interview where a lot of us, our our jaws hit the ground when she said uh, Prince Charles is not fit to be king. This is correct. And, and this was a theme that she launched. She made it her mission to ensure that that would not happen. She wanted to uh, sabotage his kingship and put Prince William in his place with herself as regent or co-regent with Charles's brother, Prince Andrew. And that was that was her plan, and she spoke about it very openly. She spoke about it on Panorama. She was a little oblique on Panorama, but to other people, including newspaper editors, who she invited to have lunch with her at Kensington Palace, she made it clear that, you know, this was her mission. It's almost like... The War of the Roses, but, you know, modernized so that all this battle uh, between the various houses competing for the throne of, of the United Kingdom, all this battle is going on behind the scenes, backstage. Instead of being fought you know, on the battlefield, it's being fought through legal channels and very, uh, and very sort of uh, surreptitiously. Yes. Um, you know, if she had lived a few centuries earlier, or, you know, even, I mean, she would have been very, very typical, because I think that English power has always been a combination of those factors, you know, battles and the backstory. And this is especially true with women who, you know, historically have not engaged in battle, but they certainly have engaged in a lot of of backstabbing, even executing themselves, I mean, suffering execution, but also, you know, many women um, manage to have their own family members executed in order to achieve some particular end. And they were able to do that because, as I say in the book, there is a very ancient tradition since Paleolithic times of human sacrifice in England among royalty. Fascinating. So if we were to explore the Spencer bloodline, um, if I remember correctly, it goes back, does it go back to the, to the Stuart line or even further to the Tudor line? Well, it certainly, you know, Tudors would, would be considered early. Um, the Spencers itself, it's, it's rather unclear. They're definitely aristocrats. They were sheep farmers. They made their fortune doing that. Uh, how exactly they appear is kind of couched in mystery. Diana's father claimed to be from an ancient Saxon line, and that's probably likely true. Uh, but that's true of many people in England. It didn't really make her so special, but it did make her very English, you know, rather than British. She also had Irish blood, and as you say, she also uh, had a claim with the Spencer royal line. So, yes, through her blood, 
um, a lot of different lines came into play in the royal family that had not been seen in centuries, mostly because the current royal family is a big influx of, of German blood. I mean, right. they're, from, they're from European royal houses. And, and is the, the question of Charles' suitability to be king, is that creating a, 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 not a vacuum necessarily, but at least uh, allowing for different challenges from different uh, families to vie for control of the throne because, you know, he would be the, the head of the Church of England and yet he is marrying, uh, he is divorced, he's marrying a divorcee. I mean, this is why Edward the the Eighth presumably was was forced to abdicate. True, the the Duke of Windsor and the notorious Wallace Simpson. Yes, he was forced to abdicate, uh, even though he was willing to allow the line to go to the young Princess Elizabeth. You know, because that would have been the way it was. It didn't appear that Wallace Simpson could have any children of her own, but. They were not going to allow him to take that line for a lot of political reasons. Um, however, the in fact he had married someone who had been divorced twice, here's how it works, and it does go back to Henry VIII. The rule does. You know, initially, uh, England was basically a Roman Catholic country. And there, there was only Catholicism, per se. And, of course, the head of the church was in Rome. Uh, Henry had only a female heir with his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and that would have been Princess Mary, who later became queen as Bloody Mary. And, of course, they were all Catholic, and Catherine was a daughter of the king and queen of Spain. And they were exceptional Catholics, in a way. I mean, their, their loyalty was unreserved. But she could not provide a living male heir. Catherine was pregnant numerous times. Children did not live long. There was thought, actually, the, to be a curse, um, because she had been married to Arthur, who was uh, King Henry's older brother. And he was the crown prince at the time, and right after their marriage, he died. And a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe he had tuberculosis, or he was just weak, or he caught pneumonia. But they themselves believed that their line had been cursed because of two executions that took place. When the Tudors came in, it, they were not natural heirs to the throne of England. And there were actually pretenders, people who they called the pretenders. And um, both of them, well, one was executed, and the other was just kind of allowed to live out his life in obscurity. So they believed that because of this execution, and that they had executed someone who had a better claim, uh, and it goes back to to Richard of Shrewsbury, the Duke of York. There were two little princes in the tower, 
uh, the sons of Edward IV, and Edward IV was deposed, and this is how the Tudors came into power. And the children were put in the Tower of London, supposedly for safekeeping, until they could become of age. But it's believed that their uncle murdered them, or had them murdered. This is Richard III, correct? Yes. And then suddenly, you know, years later, uh, you know, a young man appeared and said, hey, you know, I, I survived. I was one of the princes in the tower, and I survived, and I have a claim to the throne. And quite a few people believed, or at least professed to believe, that he did. And in fact, he was crowned at numerous places. He was identified as the prince by his surviving relatives, and he was set up you know, for a claim. He wasn't much of a soldier. He, he did try to invade with armies. Uh, he never really, never really got off the ground. He was captured. He surrendered. He was imprisoned. Uh, and then, of course, he, he was made to confess to being an imposter. And then he was allowed to appear at Henry's court. And he was, and this is the father of Henry VIII, he was, he was brought to royal banquets, but he was also married. And he was married to a woman who also, her family line had a really strong claim. And they were not allowed to be together. They were kept entirely separate. And eventually, Perkin Warbeck, which was the name he was using, uh, he tried to escape, and then he was he was put in the tower. Uh, although they couldn't see each other, he was put in a cell right next to Edward Plantagenet, who was the 17th Earl of Warwick. And supposedly the two tried to escape together, and then they were hanged. Ah, so, you know, such this, such intrigue. <laughs> yes. But but Catherine is Aragon in her notebooks, and she also spoke to, you know, she was visited, as I said, she was the daughter of the King of Spain, so the Spanish ambassador was often visiting her, even though she was farmed out to a faraway castle. She would still get visits from the ambassador and members of the Spanish court. And she made it clear that she thought the fact she could not have live sons or sons who would live a long time, she felt this to be a curse from these executions. And uh, so that was, you know, her take on it. And a lot of people believed her at the time because actually those individuals or at least the family lines that were claimed by those individuals, had a much stronger claim to the British throne than Henry Tudor had. Although, of course, you know, the Tudors put their mark on British royalty. However, you know, the fact is none of them had surviving male heirs. And there you so are. You have Listen, to we, have to take a, we have to take a time out. Sure. Uh, Sarah will come back. Uh, it seems nothing has changed, just constant uh, palace intrigue. And we are talking about the uh, the upcoming anniversary of the uh, the tragic death of uh, the former Princess, of D- uh, Princess Diana. And uh, we will come right back. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. 
shouldn't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back. Sarah Whalen is with us, uh, the author of Royal Vengeance. And uh, August 31st, of course, marks the 21st anniversary of the uh, the death of uh, Princess Diana. Technically, she wasn't Princess Diana anymore, uh, Lady Diana. And uh, let's let's go to the uh, the night of the crash. Well, the actually, of, sorry. She st- technically, she still was a princess. Oh, she really? was not. Yes, she was not allowed to keep her royal highness um, ah. address, but she was still Diana, Princess of Wales. Ah, so she I, was, was like I thought that she had been princess. stripped of her her title. Well. Yes and no. She was stripped of the HRH, which meant she could not be addressed as Her Royal Highness. That's reserved for the Queen and her immediate family. Right. But she was still in the royal orbit, and she did still have a title. But instead of being the Princess of Wales which was a title that was always given to, well, not always, but traditionally, it was a title bestowed upon the heir to the throne. And, now, uh, but she became a princess of Wales, which meant, you know, that was, that was her title. She was no longer the wife of the heir. Right. Although no longer her, her you know, a... Um her highness or her i'm sorry what was her title her royal again? Her, highness right she's no longer uh, her royal highness right she should have been one would think as the mother of two uh, the the mother of a future king she should have been entitled to uh, more formal type security uh, who who made the decision to strip her of that she was entitled to it and she herself um, at least that's the claim, she, that she did away with her own security. And um, that seems to be true. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for it. You know, some people point out, well, you know, she had quite a sex life. She was very active. She had lovers. And, you know, people were leaking information about it. And she didn't trust her security detail. Uh, if you want to look, take a deeper view, I think she was also afraid that everything she did would be reported back to the royal family, which, of course, it was. Right. And I she, think regardless, right? I mean, there was, there was so many eyes on her, so many, I'm sure, phones being tapped and just sure. spies everywhere. Yeah, and she, she would periodically tear up her carpets, and, you know, people have written about it, you know, saying, oh, she was paranoid, you know, she pulled up the floorboards, she showed me an electric cord, and, and you know, I looked at it, and it didn't look like a listening device to me. But I think it's pretty clear that, of course, she was being watched. I mean, they, they would have been very daft not to watch her. 
even under the best of circumstances. But she had a series of accidents with her cars, and she believed that her brakes had been tampered with. And uh, she had her brakes checked several times. And, of course, you know, she was close to her butler, Paul Burrell, and she confided in him. And, you know, he would take the car out to have it checked for tampered brakes. They never could find anything. But it wasn't like she was taking it to an independent person to have it evaluated. But she also told Andrew Morton, the writer of Diana, her true story, although he was actually just transcribing her own tapes where she told her own story. But she had confided to him as well that she thought her car had been tampered with and that the palace... Uh, was planning an accident that would either kill her or disable her mentally so that she would be institutionalized and Charles would be allowed to remarry. And this was an issue. It's not an issue today because Canterbury, the, the main Church of England, actually changed the rules. But since the time of Henry VIII, the rule had been that the monarch was head of the church the supreme leader of the church. And Queen Elizabeth keeps this title even today. And yes. that the, the leader of the church could not be divorced. And this is the, you know, everybody thinks, well, Henry had all these divorces, but he didn't really. He sought to have his first marriage annulled on the grounds that uh, Catherine of Aragon had first been married to his brother, and he found uh, a section in Leviticus in the Old Testament that said, you know, um, someone who, uh, that a brother should not marry his dead brother's wife. But of course, elsewhere in the Bible, it says that you should marry your dead brother's wife <laughs> and, and give her children so that, you know, your brother's line can continue through you. Right, right. So this was much debated in the Catholic Church at the time. So in other words, had Princess Diana lived... Uh, then Ch Prince Charles would not have been able to become king had he had he chosen to remarry. That's correct. He would, and he was willing to not marry, and and this was this was much discussed openly. And of course, you know they they would leak things, and it was leaked prior to her death that you know Prince Charles had no intention of marrying anyone, let alone Camilla Parker Bowles, even though she herself. After all the information came out, she and her husband, Andrew Parker Bowles, they divorced. And I mean, the interesting thing about that, if you're being gossipy, but it's also very true to ancient English practice. I mean, Camilla Parker Bowles' husband, Andrew, was a Roman Catholic from a very astute, devout Roman Catholic family in England. But his parents were quite close to the Queen Mother. He was a page at uh, Queen Elizabeth's wedding. He was, you know, very tight with the royals, and he actually dated Princess Anne. At the time, wow. there was some discussion that they would marry, but his Catholicism was an impediment. But, it, you know, it wouldn't have been such a fatal impediment because Princess Anne, uh, even though she's second in line, she's, she's second born after Prince Charles, um, but she had 
three brothers ahead of her, because as a female, she would have gone to the back of the line. Right, right. But at the time that all these frolickings were going on, where Prince Charles was having, you know, a love affair with Camilla, and uh, whose her last name was then Shand, and uh, Andrew was frolicking with Princess Anne. You know, nobody had any children yet. So, and Edward and Andrew were quite young. There's like a decade age difference between the children. So something had happened to the monarch and something happened to Prince Charles. Princess Anne might have been drafted in to take a lot of royal responsibilities. Interesting. it was preferred that she not marry Andrew Parker Bowles. And in fact, he then turned around and married Camilla while Prince Charles was out at sea. And, you know, the thought was probably, you know, Camilla was not a virgin and Andrew Parker Bowles was a Roman Catholic. So these people were very close inside the royal circle to start with, as was Princess Diana's family. They were also very, very close to royalty, even apart from the Spencer aristocrats. Um, You know, Princess Diana's maternal line was the closest. I mean, her grandmother, her maternal grandmother, was a lady-in-waiting to the queen mother. You can't, that's really an intimate job. That's someone who basically spends a lot of time with royalty and travels with them. Right, and would no doubt be a confidant. Sure, that's it. They share the secrets. You mentioned Princess uh, Diana writing uh, letters and confiding in in people close to her, her butler, Paul Burrell, that she feared for her life. She also wrote a letter to Scotland Yard, which was sort of just sealed and locked away, and and it never came out. She wrote, Uh, not to Scotland Yard, she wrote a letter to her solicitor when she was getting divorced. She had a, a divorce attorney, and she brought him... The letter, and they had a discussion. And her aide at the time, Patrick Jeffson, who's written books about her, and he was there. He was present. So we know that this meeting really happened between her and her lawyer. And she said she feared for her life, and she wrote a note describing what she thought would happen, which was that the brakes in her car would be tampered with, and you know this was going to be done. So that, you know, the impediment for Charles, the rule in the church is if your former spouse dies, that frees you to remarry. You can't remarry while your former spouse is still living. But when they're dead, you can remarry. And this was from the earliest days of the founding of the Church of England. So it allowed for divorce. If you can't stand each other, you're allowed to divorce, but you cannot remarry in the church. And Charles, the question was then, if Charles divorced, could he become head of the Church of England? And the, the, the truthful answer at the time all this happened was he could become Uh, King of England, but he could not remarry and still be head of the church. And since no monarch had had ever not been head of the church after Henry VIII, um, you know, it would have been 
like a black spot on him. So right. he said, I'm not going to remarry. And eventually, Canterbury did, they got together and they voted and they changed the law for him. But it, there had been discussions about it, you know, very early on when problems with marriage first emerged. But everything has to take place by consensus in the church, and they're very, very careful, because this opens a floodgate, you know, for there are local churches, each individual church within the umbrella of the Church of England has a lot of individual power about whether to marry people in their community or not, you know, to provide them with a wedding service in the church. And uh, I know a lot of people who are divorced, even despite this change in the law, they can't get a church service. They often have to go to a different parish, sometimes across the country, to find you know, a local Anglican church willing to marry them. Is it, is it fair to say that had Princess Diana lived uh, and Charles uh, were to become king, it, it could have caused some sort of a constitutional crisis? Yes. She was plotting to create a constitutional crisis. And, and she made it really clear. She met with members of the press all the time. That was why, you know, that's why they had the Andrew Morton book. That's why she, uh, she went on Panorama. And it was after Panorama, I said, well, for sure the divorce is going to go through now. I said, but they're, going, they're not going to stop at the divorce. They're, they're going to kill her because she is too vengeful. And they're not going to... I mean, what she said really endangered the crown. And she was very aware of what she was saying. And, you know, she, she would periodically go very far. She had an impulsive streak, maybe a little bit of, you know, some psychological issues. I mean, everybody's got them, but certainly someone in her position, you know, she felt very persecuted. And, uh, you know, she was not going to let it go. She was, she was quite determined to take this road. And right. there, is, there is an anti-monarchical uh, group in England a lot of people are fed up with the royal family. They think it's anachronistic, and they don't like paying for it. And they don't like the fact that the royals own so much real estate. I mean, the Queen's holdings, the extent of them, are not even known. Oh, but I'm sure she's the, the one of the richest uh, people on earth. Listen, Sarah, we'll take another time out. We'll come sure. back and uh, we'll we'll go to Paris on okay. the uh, the night of August the 31st. Sarah Whalen is with me, the author of Royal Vengeance: The Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett 
from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Sarah Whalen, the author of Royal Vengeance. So let's um, let's go uh, to uh, the I, night of the crash. I just want to clarify one thing, you sure. know, because um, just so there's no confusion on the letter to Scotland Yard. Like I said, that letter went to Mishkan Duray, who was her lawyer right. in the divorce, and he was very shocked, but he put it in a safe. Um, in his office, and it wasn't, you know, then he brought it to uh, Scotland Yard, and they put it in a safe, and it didn't see the light of day um, until, you know, the issue came out. And, of course, Paul Burrell produced his copy of the letter. And, you know, there were two inquests prior, and and the letter never came up until the third inquest. So I just exactly. wanted, you were right, Scotland Yard did sit on the letter, but it was initially written to her lawyer. And by that time, he had died. So, Had it come to light during the inquest, would it have changed anything? Sure. I mean, it was, it was explosive. It was, she, she, it's in her own writing. It's in her own handwriting. And she says, you know, that he's trying to kill her. And he's going to kill her through a brake accident and with her car that's going to supposedly cause serious head injury. I mean, to me, the most interesting thing about the letter is she doesn't seem to think that they were going to kill her outright, you know. But they were, they were certainly, the motive to kill her was very strong. I don't think she quite understood it. So. Paris, uh, Paris. They fly. Uh, she and uh, Dodi, or she meets Dodi, I guess, in Paris. She flies in from Sardinia the night before. They were together. They, they were together. Taken, All right. Yes, they'd taken a cruise on uh, the Jonacal, which was this spectacular yacht, and I think it was their third cruise together. And so it seemed like they were getting very intimate. And I personally, I looked at all the evidence, uh, which, you know, your viewers can, can look at it, too. The, the inquest, the Scott Baker inquest is still online, and uh, you can Google it. And they have all the testimony day by day. You have to hunt a little bit to look for the photographs. But it's a very good source for just about anyone. I highly recommend that they do that if they have any questions. Right. This is a short segment, so we'll we'll start this conversation sure. and we'll carry it on afterwards. But uh, so they're at the uh, they're stay, they're at the Ritz Hotel, right? Uh, and um, which is owned certain, by Dodi's father, Muhammad Al Fayed. Right. Now, and Henri Paul, uh, his role is is what? He was head of security at the he Ritz. Was, right. Right. He was basically a security man. He was not a professional driver, although on this particular trip, he did, he did drive. He drove a decoy car, and, you know, he put himself in on the night of the accident because the regular driver had been released to go home. Well, this is interesting. So yes. the, at the last minute, there's a change of plans. Who makes Correct. the decision to take a decoy car and go through the Elma uh, rather than where they the other route? 
Well, they were blaming Doty. I mean, you know, because Al Fayed had a security detail, uh, Kez Wingfield, and uh, I'm sorry, just drawing a blank here. The guy who went through the windshield, Trevor Reese Jones. Right. Um, they were Muhammad Al. Al-Fayed security employees, I might add that they were also British, former British commando soldiers. Yeah, all, just about all of Mohammed Al-Fayed's personal security had some kind of combat training and experience. So there are a lot of links with intelligence groups, with military groups. It's it's very shadowy situation. So the regular car suddenly is switched out because it has right. some problem. The new car comes in, no seat belts. And no tinted windows. No tinted windows, new driver, Henri Paul, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they choose a new route through the Elma Tunnel where the security cameras of all nights, coincidentally, that one night were not operating. Right. Now, it's unclear. I mean, clearly there was an aim. I believe that the aim of security services was to force them into the Alma Tunnel, where all the security cameras had been disabled. I'm not sure if Henri Paul knew about this or not. I mean, Henri Paul definitely had ties to intelligence groups. He seems to have been a very low-level uh, you know, not a formal officer. He was a local person who had ties, and he was probably paid for services. He was, he was a quasi-professional, but someone you'd consider like maybe a contract worker. You know, they may come along and they'll say, hey, you know, um, there's a sheikh staying at the hotel. We want a bug put in his room, or we want to know what time he's leaving, or we want to know who he's meeting in the bar. And Henri Paul would supply that information. When he died, he had a large amount of cash on him. He had thousands of francs. And he also had hundreds of thousands in his bank accounts. And he had more than one account. And given his salary, there was really no way that he could afford that. When we come back, Sarah, we'll also discuss whether, in fact, uh, as we've been told repeatedly, he was drunk. And the uh, the idea here is the, 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 the accident supposedly was caused by a combination of high speed, a drunk driver, and uh, the reckless paparazzi who were in hot pursuit. We'll discuss all with Sarah Whalen when we come back right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
Welcome back. Sarah Whalen stays with us. This is our uh, two-hour special on the uh, the death of Princess Diana as we approach the 21st anniversary. Sarah Whalen, journalist, author of Royal Vengeance, the assassination of Princess Diana and the ancient royal cult of human sacrifice. Now, uh, I have, I've been told uh, that even before the blood tests, the toxicology reports on Henri Paul were completed, the, the press in England had pronounced him drunk as a pig, quote, end quote, right. which is, is interesting. So first of all, was he drunk? I don't think so. Um, in theory, there was a blood sample that was taken. But if you, again, if you go to the website and you look at the testimony of the coroners and the doctors who did the analysis and the autopsies, and you'll see that Either his sample was contaminated with the blood of another person who died the same night, or, uh, you know, it was just contaminated. It doesn't seem to be accurate. First of all, it had a lot of carbon monoxide in it, so much that you wouldn't be able to stand up. And this brought about several theories. People said, well, when the airbag exploded, you know, he must have inhaled the carbon monoxide. It's impossible. I mean, he was killed instantly. He, he had his spine was severed in three places. His aorta was severed. Uh, and people discounted that theory. Medical people said, no, he didn't inhale any carbon monoxide. So you'd have to ask yourself why such a high amount. Mohammed Al-Fayed hired crack investigators, former Scotland Yard detectives, and their theory was that the blood of Henri Paul was either replaced or contaminated with the blood of a person who had committed suicide earlier that night by, you know, running a, a, uh, a hose into his car so that he asphyxiated from the carbon monoxide in his tailpipe, and that he had also been very drunk, and he sedated himself with a bunch of pills when, when he, he did this act of suicide. And so they took that sample and used it to prove that Henri Paul was drunk. And in support of skepticism about Henri Paul being drunk, you have the testimony of Henri Paul's best friend in Paris who knew him quite well. And he said, uh, I think in the apartment, there was maybe a few beers in the refrigerator. He had like a typical French bar you know, where he had a few things to drink, like some aperitifs. If you invited someone over, you might offer them, you know, a small drink. And that two days later, when they had to prove that Henri Paul was a drunk and an alcoholic and he'd driven drunk, he went back into the apartment and he said that someone had come in and loaded it with all kinds of alcohol, every kind of conceivable, you know, strong spirit, things that Henri Paul never drank and certainly didn't have in his house on a regular basis. So, yeah, his his friend believed that the police had come in and planted these things because by that time they did have access to the apartment and they had to, you know, try to bolster the theory that, you know, this was just a tragic drunk driving accident. But 
that was all knocked out because on the side of the car, on the side of the Mercedes, you could see a white paint scrape. And there was also uh, glass from a Fiat Uno, a white Fiat Uno. And, you know, eyewitness testimony is not hugely reliable, especially when things are happening so quickly and it's such an important person. But the testimony is pretty consistent that right before the Mercedes reached the Alma Tunnel, there was a white Fiat Uno that was just kind of dawdling, barely even moving. And then once the Mercedes came in behind it, the Fiat Uno started blocking the Mercedes and edging it. And in fact, not only is there the scrape on the side, and we know that that the right uh, rear view mirror of the, the outside mirror of the Mercedes was torn off by impact with the Fiat, but there's also a scrape from the the Fiat Uno's tire onto the right side front Mercedes tire, which indicated that it pushed the car into the 13th pillar of the Alma Tunnel. And this was established by impartial experts at the inquest. There's no doubt that the Fiat Uno caused that wreck. And Henri Paul was going, he wasn't going too fast. He was, he was exceeding the speed limit, but that's a pretty common occurrence throughout the world. It's an especially common occurrence in Paris. And unless you, you know, come into contact with a car that intentionally is pushing you to the left of the roadway so that you are going to run into one of these pillars, and the pillars aren't round. They're pointed. They're they're like square pillars. They're highly dangerous. Had the Mercedes hit the wall of the Alma Tunnel on the right side, very likely everyone would have survived the impact, even without seatbelts. But the whole G-forces impact of hitting the the pointed end of the pillar in that way is what caused the death. Right. And, and certainly thir- every... The th- Go ahead. Sorry, the 13th pillar, uh, that can't be a coincidence. You know, and a lot of conspiracy theorists make a big deal, you know, over the number 13, and that, you know, this was all intended and has an occult significance. I don't deny that. And that's entirely possible. You know, the royal family has has had occult dealings for centuries, and it wouldn't surprise me at all that it has significance. You would, and people say, well, how could you be so precise about doing this? But I don't know. But I think if you saw it in a movie, <laughs> you would believe it in a heartbeat. I mean, there are films that, that have conspiracy plan-outs that are certainly infinitely more complex than this one. It's a military operation. It's it got is. military precision. And, and they had a witness, Richard Tomlinson, who was very insistent that this had been a previous, that it was a, a uh, not a dry run, but it was, it was a run of a previous military operation that was aimed at assassinating Milosevic, who, you know, at the time was a thorn in everybody's side uh, when we were having a lot of wars in Eastern Europe 
small wars that were very destabilizing. And the idea was they were going to transport Milosevic, follow his motorcade, and take him out in a, in a mountain tunnel where nothing could be seen, even by satellite, and they were going to push his car into a similar pillar. So, yes, the military, uh, you know, they, they plan very strategic strike operations all the time. It does not surprise me that they would be able to act with such precision. doesn't surprise me at all. They had a little help, too, a little uh, a method of distracting the driver, this blinding light that people yes, reported seeing in the, in, the, in the tunnel. Tell me that about was, that. Well, that was part of Milosevic's plan. I mean, the, the plan to kill Milosevic. There would be a, uh, and it's not an ordinary strobe like what you might be able to buy yourself. This is a military-grade strobe light. It's often used to destable pilots at night people trying to land helicopters at night or operate at night. And it it blinds you. It blinds you for several minutes so that if you are driving a moving vehicle, you're very likely to lose control of it. You absolutely cannot see where you're going. And so there were witnesses who said when the Mercedes took off with Dodie and Diana and the bodyguard in it, that, you know, it, it made various stops around the Place de la Concorde. And an exit that they would have taken off that strip heading to the tunnel, in theory, they would, have, they would have gone off to another street, which would have taken them directly to Dodi Al-Fayed's apartment, which was by the Arc de Triomphe on the other side of Paris. But it would have been a very straight shot. Now, even if you go through the Alma Tunnel, you'd be on the other side of the same river, but in theory, as soon as you got out, you would simply make a right-hand turn and follow the river down, and then you would cross again at another bridge close to the Arc de Triomphe, and then you would be home. But that's why this accident had to happen in the Alma Tunnel. And witnesses said that they saw vehicles blocking the exits so that the Mercedes couldn't leave if it wanted to. It had to go through the tunnel. But I don't think that Henri Paul was alarmed. I don't think he had any reason to be alarmed. He just right. thought, I'll have to go through the tunnel, you know, and make a right, and then I'll take, you know, the road down the Seine River, and then I'll make another right, and I'll go through another bridge, and we'll be home. And it, I don't think he had any reason to suspect that anything was wrong, until the strobe hit him, maybe, maybe a second before when the motorcycles came. Witnesses say that there were, and these are not paparazzi scooters. I just wish to be clear. These are really high-level, very fast motorbikes driven by people in leathers with black helmets obscuring their face. These are not paparazzi chasing around looking for a picture. And what they did was they got on either side of the Mercedes, one whipped around on the left between the, the uh, what would you call it, the median, I guess, right, inside right. the tunnel, and then came around to the front of the Mercedes, and it had a passenger riding pinion on the back, and that's the person who hit Henri Paul with a flash. 
Right. And, so, and then the, the white Uno, the mysterious white it. Uno, careened into right. the side, forcing the, the car while Henri Paul was blinded momentarily, right. forcing the car into the, uh, into the pillar. Now, the witnesses also say after the crash, immediately after the crash, the passenger on that motorcycle jumped off, ran over, looked inside, and made a, a particular hand gesture to the driver of the motorcycle. What was right. that? Crossed his crossed his forearms over his chest, which they say is a military signal that means everybody in the vehicle is dead or presumed dead. And then they got on and they took off. And, you know, even the Fiat Uno witnesses said that, you know, the Fiat Uno just kept going. It went around the carnage and it slowed down a little bit. Some witnesses saw the driver turn around and look at the accident and then take off into the night. And we know pretty much who the driver is. I mean, Mohammed Al-Fayed did pin that down. I don't necessarily agree with his other theories, you know, that Princess Diana was pregnant. Um, but his, his Scotland Yard detective did pretty much determine how the accident took place, and they identified the driver, who was a man named James Andenson. And he had been, uh, not a, he's not truly a paparazzi. He was a professional photographer who specialized in royal houses. And he was also rumored to have deep associations with British intelligence. I mean, he would go meet with, you know, various people, government officials, and then, you know, he would go meet with his contacts in British intelligence. And again, this was a guy who was extraordinarily wealthy. He had an estate in Saint-Tropez. He had uh, a house, I think, in the Burgundy wine region. And he did have a white Fiat Uno. And the, the paint on the white Fiat Uno matched his paint. And before, they, they actually brought him in to be interviewed several times. And it's pretty clear that he lied, although we don't know how much he lied because the French inquest is entirely private. I mean, that is well, we'll, not I'll have to jump in and we'll take another time out sure. here, uh, Sarah. When we come back, we'll find out what happened to the driver of the white yeah. Uno. And also, uh, why did it take so long to transport Princess Diana to hospital? Back with more of my conversation with Sarah Whalen, author of Royal Vengeance, The Assassination of Princess Diana and the Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. 
long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, and uh, hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in Toronto. All of you listening along the uh, the network uh, to one of our affiliates across North America, those of you who take the show with you wherever you go with your mobile device. And uh, just a reminder, the Zoomer Radio uh, app and the Conspiracy Show app are both free downloads. Both of you, are, and a hello to all of you who uh, listen via the uh, the YouTube channel. Wherever and however you're listening, I thank you for your fine company. Sarah Whalen stays with us for hour two, our two-hour special on the assassination of Princess Diana. And uh, Sarah is a, a journalist and the author of Royal Vengeance. We were talking about the um, Princess Diana and uh, the Mercedes traveling through the Elma Tunnel. And uh, we were talking about the uh, the infamous white uh, Uno uh, vehicle, which slammed into the side of the car, forcing it into the 13th pillar at uh, in the Alma Tunnel. How many witnesses uh, saw this and how many were interviewed uh, for the Scott Baker inquest? Uh, many were interviewed. Not all testimony was taken. Uh, the in, of course, when the, the French judge did the first inquest, there were maybe 30 witnesses, and it gradually dwindled down to just a handful who were, you know, uh, some were considered unreliable. But there was a lot of consistency in the statements. You have to take three inquests and put them together, which is pretty much what I did in the book. So, you know, not all of them have really high reliability. And somebody might get fired from their job, be upset, and the cops say, oh, you know, he he has a reputation for being a hothead. But so what? I mean, if he was there, and, and the witnesses range from really wealthy people to cab drivers to, you know, unemployed homeless people who were just hanging around the tunnel. But they saw what they saw, the testimony about the bright blinding flash is very consistent so you know i don't i don't have a doubt on on that score at all and for those who think well maybe it was the paparazzi and they simply ran off there is a law in france uh, if you witness a a crime or a quick if you witness an accident you must stay and provide assistance correct this is true yes and uh, so, you know, that was initially the arrest of the paparazzi. I think that was just a red herring, you know, because, first of all, the people came after the accident. I think what infuriated bystanders was that the, some of the paparazzi were indeed taking pictures. But all that film was confiscated. There, there is hardly a photo available of Princess Diana there may be two in the car, and all the film was confiscated. And what's really interesting is that James Andenson, the, the guy who owned a white Fiat Uno, whose paint matches the paint in the accident, you know, he claimed not to be in Paris on that night, but it seems, in fact, it's very likely he was. 
because he left from Orly Airport the next morning. He made sure to, I think he went to Corsica for four days immediately after the accident, just hours after. How did they, how did they put the, uh, the finger on Andenson? How did they identify that he was the driver? It, it, it was identified by a detective hired by, by, uh, by Mohammed Al-Fayed. And, and that was really the key to just about everything. One of the, one way it was, I mean, he was known. He was a known personality. But he had also, he gave, he gave statements to the police saying he hadn't been anywhere near the Paris Tunnel. But then he told close friends of his that he had been in the Paris Tunnel that night. He also told people he had photographs. He further told several people that he was going to collaborate on a book. <laughs> and all of this came out. And, you know, he was busy denying these things to the Paris police, but people were saying no. You know, I had a conversation with him, and he said that, you know, he had these photographs, he wants to write a book, he wants to make some money, and he knows what happened. And next thing you know, James Andenson disappears, and then he's found dead, burned to death, in not in the white Fiat Uno, but in another vehicle that he owned, in a very distant field in France, in the middle of nowhere, that's actually owned by the military. Doors were locked from the inside, and the firemen who came... You know, there was a burning car, so the fire department was called, and a fireman came out, and he said he saw two bullet holes in Andenson's forehead. Right, you can shoot yourself once, but you very likely can't shoot yourself twice. Right, right. And the, everybody tried to discredit the fireman, but, you know, he stuck to his guns, and he said, I, I deal with all kinds of accidents, and I've seen bullet holes throughout my work, and these were bullet holes. There were a lot of theories that, you know, if, you're, if your body gets too hot, you know, a hole will form in your head and your brain will shoot out. I mean, it was pretty wild stuff. But the, the fireman was, was quite insistent on what he saw. And, of course, Andenson was burned completely to a crisp and, uh, because nobody could get in the car. And why, why would they have chosen James Andenson to drive the vehicle that forced Princess Diana's Mercedes into that pillar? Why him? I guess because he was willing and he had these ties with British intelligence. You know, they chose people who were expendable and they didn't fool around. I mean, I think that the... The plan was probably to wipe out close witnesses. You couldn't do it immediately. I mean, Henri Paul died on impact. So you know he's not going to be a factor. And it's predictable in an accident like that. This is just physics. This is G-forces. The people on the left side of the vehicle all died very instantly. And that would be Henri Paul and Dodi Al-Fayed sitting behind him. I mean, their aortas were severed. Now... On the right side, you have less of an impact. And, you know, all of them, if they'd been wearing seatbelts, they all would have lived. And a lot of questions were raised about the seatbelts. But 
assuming that the seatbelts were disabled, I mean, Trevor Reese Jones went through the windshield, and in a way, it's lucky he did. It, I mean, it's a horrific facial injury, and I don't want to minimize what happened to him, but he didn't have any severe internal injuries. Princess Diana was spun around in the back seat, and she her aorta was not severed. She had damage. She had a tear in her pulmonary vein, which is, I mean, that will kill you, but it's a much slower bleed than the aorta. The aorta is almost always fatal. You're going to die within four minutes. But the slow bleed, she could have stayed alive for hours, and she did. And if they had gotten her to the hospital within what they call the golden hour, the first 60 minutes of impact, you know, then you have a better than 50% chance of living. And I was, think she, that, was she conscious? Do, do witnesses report that she was conscious and speaking in the back yes. seat? Yes. She, she was talking. Her eyes were open. Um, you know, and then various things were done to make her less responsive. So all of a sudden, there's, you know, there just always happens to be these, these do-good doctors you know, Frederick Maillez is a French doctor, and he's supposedly just serendipitously traveling on the opposite side of the Alma Tunnel. He sees the accident. He pulled over. He's with a companion who's American, doesn't speak French, not too sure what's going on. And for a guy who is supposedly a professional emergency services physician, he didn't have a medical kit in his car. I mean, you know, this came out at the inquest. It's the law. He's supposed to have it. He's paid to have it. All he had was a blood pressure cuff and an oxygen mask. And when they put the mask over her face, she stopped talking. You know, but but witnesses say she spoke. Now, of course, they're French. She's speaking English. They don't fully understand what she's saying, but one fireman in particular saw that she, she was rubbing her stomach. I mean, this is one reason for the pregnancy rumor to be so persistent. She was rubbing her stomach and indicating that she had something to protect down there. You know, so, so there were witnesses who saw her doing these things, and she went in and out of consciousness, but the ambulance came almost immediately, instead of picking her up and bringing her to a very nearby hospital, they chose a hospital that was further away that didn't, and they kept talking that she had some kind of neurological injury. But when you have a vehicle where two people have died from aorta bleed outs, it's quite obvious that's why they died. You've got to know that the other people are in similar danger. So you don't take time to stabilize them and make sure that they have a pretty blood pressure. You lift them up and you get them to the hospital because they need a stitch in, in, their, in their blood vessel. Otherwise, they're bleeding to death internally. It's a slow bleed. And at one point, it seemed like hers was really slow, much slower than anticipated. Apparently, some of her blood clotted. So 
you know, the bleed was effectively stopped for a period or, or slowed so that she could survive. But How long did it take to get her into the ambulance from the car? Once the ambulance arrived, and it was very quick, but how long then did it take to get her into the ambulance? 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Yeah, they didn't even load her. I mean, the ambulance gets there 17 minutes after the first emergency call. And, but if they, the doctor, who is this guy, Jean-Marc Martino, who wasn't even technically a physician at the time, it's really unclear about why he's driving around in the ambulance as the medic, because he hadn't, he hadn't officially gotten his medical degree yet. And, you know, he just dilly-dallied. He, he didn't move her. He, he kept claiming she had a heart attack. That's disputed by medical people. What happened was the way her body was positioned and given her injury, her blood pressure would drop. I mean, she certainly was in danger of cardiac arrest. But, you know, you have to get them to the hospital so that the tear in the pulmonary vein can be stitched. That's the only thing that will save her life. There is no way to stabilize her. You need to get her. Every minute you delay is a nail in her coffin. And, you know, he just kept attending to Trevor Reese Jones, who admittedly was screaming his head off, but there was another ambulance for Trevor Reese Jones. There were three ambulances that came to the site. One, you know, would have been for the dead bodies, the other for Trevor Reese Jones, and then one for Princess Diana. And after they finally load her in the ambulance, they administer all the wrong drugs to her that actually speed up the bleeding. And then, inexplicably, on the way, because by this time, you know, paparazzi were there, and there were two guys on a motorbike who were following the ambulance. The ambulance was going so slowly, five to ten miles an hour, that they had to get off their scooter and walk. That's remarkable. Listen, I have to jump in again, Sarah. We're going to take another time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll follow the ambulance uh, carrying Princess Diana. Sarah Whalen, my guest, the author of Royal Vengeance, the assassination of Princess Diana and the ancient royal cult of human sacrifice. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Sarah Whalen. Royal Vengeance, the assassination of Princess Diana and the ancient royal cult of human sacrifice. Um, you, you said that they started administering drugs to her in the ambulance en route to hospital. They right. were speeding up her the, the bleeding. How do we know this? How do you know this? Uh, the doctor himself has testified about what he did. And he's, he's testified under oath several times. He was found, the last inquest, they had to track him down to Germany. 
He's a French doctor, Jean-Marc Martino, and he testified under oath about what he did. And it was completely the wrong thing to do. Several uh, heart surgeons have written about it. In fact, uh, I think Dr. John Oshner of Oshner Hospital in New Orleans is a very famous medical family. He's, he's gone public with his view that, you know, he didn't say she was killed deliberately, but he said that they did everything wrong. And it seems so unlikely that they would be so incompetent. And I mean, the hospital was so close. Even, even the one they chose which was not a place that would have had a specialist for that kind of heart surgery easily available. She still would have had a shot at Pitié Salpietre. You could have lifted her in a fireman's carry, and you could have walked her to the hospital faster than the ambulance got her there. In fact, at one point, when they're just feet away, from the hospital on the other side of the street, the ambulance just stopped. And the reporters saw, they assumed it was the doctor, a guy in a white coat, get out, open the back doors, jump in, close the doors, and then the, the ambulance began rocking back and forth. They were just horrified. They had and no how, clue. how long was it pulled over? Ten minutes. Again, you could have just walked her across the street. He, he kept saying initially, you know, he kept saying uh, he had to do some kind of very delicate procedure. But, you know, that's where his testimony breaks down. Then he just kept saying, you know, that the blood pressure was, was so volatile. He was afraid that hitting any bumps would instantly cause her death. And, you know, a lot of people supported this view including Diana's own family. Initially, the Spencers supported this view. They didn't later, but initially they were gung-ho on it. They had also been led falsely to believe that she had irreversible brain damage, which just was not true at all. Her brain was fine. She didn't have neurological damage. She, she, I mean, eventually you will if you don't get enough oxygen, but the accident didn't cause that. And that's confirmed by the autopsy? Yes. I mean, that's, that's just not even, that's just hokum. And, you know, the Spencers, I'll say this, they're aristocrats, but they're not particularly intelligent ones. You know, they don't have <laughs> medical degrees. They barely get out of college. You know, they're, they're not brainiac people. And they are, their whole life is pretty much supporting the crown. Even her brother, who made, you know, this really uh, very pointed uh, uh, eulogy at her, at her funeral, and he was vastly applauded for it, and he was considered very insolent to the royal family. But he didn't have a clue about how his sister died. I mean, if he, if he had, he would have been a lot more outraged. He was just furious that they took her title away from her. And then he blamed the press. You know, but the press had nothing to do with this crash, although they were all arrested. And that was simply to confiscate all their film. And even Anderson, after he died, the office where he worked was raided. It was supposedly... Um, Thieves came and stormed the office, 
And they were all wearing balaclavas, you know, these black ski masks. They shot a security guard in the foot. And basically, they just grabbed all of Andenson's computers, his hard drives, any, anything that would have had photographs on it. And they took that. I mean, they left our treasures worth thousands of dollars, Lalique crystal, all kinds of antiques. They weren't after anything of value. They wanted to get those pictures. And several other editors reported break-ins. You know, even how, while how they did were uh, in the Anderson, If Anderson's driving the white Uno, how is he able to take photographs? Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think personally he had photographs. But he probably knew people who did have photographs. And, you know, Andenson was, a. Um, again, these are not super-duper intelligent people. They may be an intelligent operative because of who they know and what they know. But, you know, time passes. You think you've eluded the French police. You think you've outsmarted them. And Andenson probably did, or the French police just made... You know they weren't going to they weren't going to work that hard. If you follow Mohammed Al Fayed, the French uh, security forces were colluding with the British intelligence forces to create this assassination. So not everybody is fully in on the deal. Not everyone can see the big picture. But just assume that Andenson thinks he's eluded French interest. So now he's feeling kind of cocky, and and this was very much Andenson's personality. He was brash. He was kind of a bore. If you look at photos of him, I mean, he looks like a he looks like a prize-fighting boxer. You know, he's a rough guy, and he may have just thought, well, I, I can get <coughs> I can get pictures. Right, you know, right. Or the alternative is he wasn't driving. It was his car, but he was in the car. That's and a possibility. Maybe he did squeeze off the picture. Let, let, let's go back to the uh, to the hospital. Uh, sure. And she arrives somewhere what around two a.m. Just after two. In the morning. She was dead. She was already dead. I mean, they made a good effort. They they opened her chest, and of course, the chest was filled with blood. So all her blood in her system had basically gone into her chest. It was full. So they had to transfuse her. They had to give her new blood. There was supposedly they didn't know what her blood type is, which seems bizarre. She's one of the most famous people in the world. Um, Seems like that would be information you might get very quickly while you're spending an hour trying to, you know, figure out what to do with her in the ambulance. You might have found out her blood type, but they didn't. So supposedly they used O, universal donor. And, uh, you know, they basically put blood into her and tried to get her blood pressure going again. But the blood wouldn't circulate. And then they took her heart out and massaged it in their hands. And they tried for three hours. I mean, those doctors were completely legitimate. John Mark Martino, I don't think so. I think something was wrong with him. I mean, it seems the height of incompetence to delay a person over an hour when you know they have to be bleeding internally. There's a really high chance, better than 80% chance, that they have some kind of devastating internal injury. 
But he is just that is that the protocol in France? Though I've heard someone argue that that's the way they do it. You have to you stabilize the person before you transport. Yeah, that's the argument. And okay, you know there are two different philosophies. The United States is scoop and run, and then in France, American doctors call it stay and play. So okay, you want to play with someone in an ambulance? All right, but you you can't deny the physics. Especially if you are an accident medic. This is your specialization. Two people on the left side of the vehicle are instantly dead. The other one is barely conscious. You have to assume that everyone in the car had a similar impact with G-forces. And none of them have belts on. So... Something has to be wrong with her internally, and they knew it because her blood pressure kept going up and down. And it doesn't matter what kind of drug you give her to momentarily pop the blood pressure up. But popping the blood pressure up means it's going to be really hard to operate on her if you do get her to the hospital in time. You, you add in a complication. So either Jean-Marc Martino was incompetent, which is entirely possible, I'm not denying it, or he's really devoted to the French stay-and-play method where you try to stabilize someone. But like I said, this goes against what you observe about the accident with your own eyes. I mean, you're there. You see two people are dead. (laughs) And, And you know the nature of the accident is an impact accident. You have to rush this person to the hospital. You can do a lot of things in a French ambulance. I'll grant you that. But the one thing you can't do is open-heart surgery in a French ambulance or any ambulance. Right. You have to be in a surgery with surgeons who are going to do this. And that involves getting her to the hospital very quickly. Two in the morning is inc- that's crazy. She's already dead. Stopping the ambulance has never, never been explained. And he, you know, this was the thing about the inquest. If he had been in an American court, he wouldn't, I don't think he would have walked out alive, really. I mean, you know, the American way of questioning a witness is very aggressive. You are very fact-driven. And you pound your point home. And if you look at the inquest testimony, it's like these English people, they're they're sitting around drinking tea and eating crumpets and being very (laughs) overly polite with each other. And they're just thinking, God, this is why nothing got done. This is and and then not to call Prince Philip. You know, they have numerous witnesses and you may not like them, like uh, Simone Simmons who is a psychic, but she was a friend of Diana's. She says she saw Prince Philip's letters. She testified about it. Her testimony was never refuted. And she said that Prince Philip, that Diana feared Prince Philip. There were numerous witnesses. Um, a, an Argentine dress designer. He's, he's more than that. He's kind of a bon vivant kind of character. And he traveled a lot with Princess Diana. And he took a trip with her, an official trip to Argentina, right after the divorce was announced. And he said they were in the airport, 
and there were portraits of the Queen and Prince Philip in the lounge where they were waiting in the airport. And, and you know, that's very typical to have portraits of the Queen and Prince Philip, or yes. at least the Queen. But Roberto Dvorak pointed, he said that Diana pointed to the portrait of Philip and said, he wants me dead. And, you know, she went into some detail about why. And she claimed that he had written her letters. No one ever denied that Philip wrote her letters. And Diana claimed to people that the letters were abusive. She supposedly told Muhammad al-Fayed about the letters as well. But Prince Philip was never called to testify. And the coroner wrote like a four-page letter you know, very torturous, explaining that, you know, he he had the power to call Prince Philip, but he didn't think it would do any good. He didn't think it would shed any light on anything. And, of course, to call the queen is quite out of the question, because it's the queen's court. I mean, nobody is going to bring the British monarch into the court. But, exactly. You know, Listen, uh, I've got to take another time out. Uh, we'll uh, sure. come back and pick up on this. Sarah Whalen, the author of Royal Vengeance, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Sarah Whalen stays with us. We're discussing the assassination of Princess Diana as we approach the 21st anniversary of her death. Um, the back to the hospital. There seem to be a, an, they, they seem to be in an awful rush to embalm the body. What was yeah. that all about? Well, you know, they uh, in France. And this was interesting because, in theory, they had no right to embalm her. I mean, she was a private citizen. And the only person, in theory, who could order an embalming would have been her brother. But apparently the palace got involved, and they actually sent royal embalmers over. And in the meantime, uh, the French government on its own decided to bring in two French embalmers as well. I mean, there was a huge rush to have her body embalmed. The explanation was that, of course... It was August when she died. It was very, very hot. And the hospital, the part of the hospital where she was, did not have air conditioning. So the room was boiling. But it did have a morgue for dead bodies. And why they didn't bring her body to the morgue where it would have been cooled and it would have been perfectly preserved and no rush needed to do anything is a question. But supposedly, Prince Charles announced that he was flying in to see his dead ex-wife and uh, to pick up the body and bring her back to England on a royal plane. And he made sure to pick up her two sisters, Jane Fellows and Sarah McCorkdale. So he had the two sisters with him. 
And if you look at the photos, you know, it's very telling to me. I, I try to do a little Kremlinology and look at the faces and see what they might be communicating. I mean, Sarah Fellows was, Jane Fellows was absolutely crushed. You could see how emotional she was. But Sarah McCorkdale, who had been initially Prince Charles's girlfriend before Diana, she was much more skeptical. She was very wary in her facial expressions and calculating as though she was putting a picture together. And, uh, of course, Jane Fellows is married to Robert Fellows, who is the secretary to the Queen. And Mohammed al-Fayed got everybody very excited because he claimed that Fellows was in Paris on the night of the accident and that he had orchestrated the assassination. Ah. And Fellows did testify at the inquest. He claimed, you know, that he was at his country house in Norfolk, and he had some friends with him, and they had gone to uh, a, a little fair at their local church in the evening. But, you know, again, this is the difference between British and American people. Fellows had been knighted. Fellows was close to the queen. It seemed incomprehensible to a lot of people that Fellows would do anything wrong. But Fellows hated Diana, I mean, by this time. And Jane was not allowed to even speak to her sister. And, you know, Fellows was first servant of the queen. And uh, I timed it out. It would have been, I don't know if he was there or not. Alfie had claimed to have witnesses who had seen fellows at the British Embassy. And I might add that the British Embassy is just blocks away from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. It's mm. very close. And uh, so it's entirely possible that fellows could have been there. He could have gone to the entertainment at his village church and then just jumped in a helicopter, popped across the channel. He could have been there very quick, and it certainly would have been there long before midnight. Well, does he and, have, does he have the, the experience, the resume uh, of someone to, to, to conduct such an operation? No, he's not an intelligence operative at all. He's a courtier. But the thing with people close to the throne is they do a lot of orchestrating, always. You know, this is, this is what they do, and often they're generational. You know, I don't think Fellows was the son of a land manager of the Queen at Sandringham. Usually there's some close tie that brings a courtier into the royal orbit. And ordinarily, they stay there for life. You notice with the new royals, there's there's a lot of to and froing. There's there's a lot of courtiers have been fired recently. It's unusual. Usually, something really big has to happen. There's right. clearly a changing of the old guard. And of course, the queen is in her 90s. You know, and she's not in the greatest of health. So, you know, there's a lot of jostling. Prince William and Prince Harry have both married commoners. I mean, William has the advantage of marrying a British commoner, an English commoner. But, uh, of course, Prince Harry kind of went off the reservation, married Meghan Markle. It's very sensational. 
she's divorced, she's mixed race. I think they allowed it, you know, for lots of reasons. But one reason is he's he's pretty far down the food chain at the moment. Right. Listen, we'll take another time out. We'll come sure. back and finish up. We'll uh, continue to talk about the rush to embalm. What were they trying to conceal? Yeah. And uh, all of that awaits. Sarah Whale, an author of Royal Vengeance, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sapp from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Sarah Whalen. Uh, just uh, one final uh, segment remains, and I, I wanted to go back to the embalming. Uh, and I, I guess officials claim that they, there was a rush to embalm because they had to get the body ready for viewing for Prince Charles and also, I believe, French President Chirac and his wife wanted to pay their respects. Um, but there, there was another reason, I'm guessing, uh, that they wanted to hide something. Is it? Is it? plausible, uh, possible rather, that, that she was pregnant and that that's, that's the reason they did this partial embalming. Yes, it certainly is possible. And, you know, what people don't realize is um, Lady Colin Campbell, uh, who's, she's a big royalty writer, um, several, I guess over a decade ago, she wrote a book about how Princess Diana had had an abortion. She became pregnant by Oliver Hoare, one of her lovers, and he was married. He wasn't going to leave his wife, and she was still married to Prince Charles. She hadn't gotten divorced yet. And so she went to the office of her financial advisor in London, and they arranged to do an abortion in his office. It's never been disputed, and of course it's a really difficult thing to dispute, especially now that she's dead, but she made no secret about wanting more children. And, you know, Dodie Al-Fayed, witnesses say he was calling people and saying that he was going to marry the princess, and they were going to live in his house in Malibu, and, you know, arrangements were being made very quickly for this marriage to take place. So it's entirely possible that she was pregnant. You can't but, but rule I, it I, out. I, I, I believe you said earlier, though, you, you personally don't believe she was. You know, I don't, I don't think it's important to why she was murdered. I think it's certainly important to why they may have wanted to do uh, an embalming. Whether she was or wasn't, they wouldn't really know 100% certain, but they would want to wipe out any evidence one way or another. And embalming certainly does that. That would completely eradicate any evidence of pregnancy. So, you know, if they, if they wanted to avoid that scandal, that's what they did. I don't think that they killed her thinking that she was pregnant. I don't think that was a strong enough motive. Um, 
I think the main thing was that she, as long as she was alive, she was an impediment to Charles marrying. And, you know, her campaign to deprive him of the crown, she wouldn't have let that go. She'd already, in theory, she she had, uh, she'd signed an, an agreement with the royal family, and they gave her, I think, 17 million pounds in return, and they allowed her to live at Kensington Palace, keep her apartment, and, uh, but she was about to cut loose from that. And, was she going uh, to marry a Dodie? Oh, I, I don't have a doubt that she would have. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, she didn't love Dodie, blah, blah, blah. I think Dodie, through his father, offered her just an inordinate amount of wealth, wealth that would equal what she had access to with the British royal family. Mohammed al-Fayed had private planes. She was already using his planes. When she went to Bosnia, she went on one of his planes. You know, people don't even realize that. He was already funding her activities with the landmines. And, you know, this is a big motive to kill her, because what I was told by people very high up was that she was going to get a Nobel Peace Prize for her landmines work. That was a given. And had that happened, that would have really made Charles look like a fool and the whole royal family looking like a fool. And I think they knew that was going to happen, and they couldn't allow it to. I think that was a much stronger immediate motive to kill her than the possibility that she might be pregnant with some other guy. I mean, even Harry's paternity is is much in doubt. Diana fooled around. I don't think that came as a huge shock to anyone. But the idea of her getting a Nobel Peace Prize and Charles looking like an idiot, that, that would have been a very bitter pill to swallow and certainly would have given them grounds. However, they probably wanted just to make sure to wipe out any evidence that she might be pregnant. I, well, I don't really entirely subscribe to Mohammed Al-Fayed's view that, you know, the idea that a Muslim stepfather and, you know, that there would be a... It, it would have been a complication for the royal family they wouldn't have been happy about. But I think they would have been much more unhappy to have her win the Nobel Peace Prize. She would have been unstoppable. Right. Uh, but she may well did, have been pregnant, and they made sure they did really like a triple embalming when you get right down to it, because they embalmed her again. They had a second autopsy when she arrived back in England, and then embalmed again. And, you know, the guy who did the autopsy said, I looked into her uterus and I didn't see anything, but it would have been, it would have been washed out in the first embalming in Paris. So you wouldn't right. have seen any evidence of her pregnancy. Now, recently, they claim they took uh, a blood sample. Apparently, she bled a little bit in the car. This is the claim. I just saw a trickle of blood, you know, on her, in her forehead area. But they claim they took blood off the seat, and they tested it for pregnancy hormones, and it came back negative. But there's no way to really guarantee these results so many years after the accident. I think they had numerous reasons to kill her. 
but I think the threat she posed to the monarchy as long as she lived, that was big. And, you know, certainly marrying Dodi al-Fayed brought everything to a crescendo because all of a sudden she would have had access to money, real money. Do you you think the initial intention may have been to scare her? No, that's that's been talked about. But they'd already you know, if you if you subscribe to the view that that one of the accidents there was an accident where she claims the brakes didn't work and she jumped out of her car, she abandoned the car in the middle of the street and she took a taxi back to Kensington Palace and someone had to go retrieve the car and she claimed that the brakes had been tampered with then. That might have been to scare her. There was a similar accident with Camilla. Camilla ran a woman off the road and left the accident. Uh, the, the lady who was in the ditch was rescued, and she complained to high heaven You know that Camilla hadn't even come to check on her. But the response is that Camilla may have believed her life was in danger, similar to Diana. Maybe her brakes failed, and she had been told, if anything like that ever happens, you are to run away, get to a safe location, and, you know, try to use your phone. And apparently she was out in the country and couldn't get a signal, so she had to go quite a distance. But, you know, her friends reported that Camilla was exceptionally terrified and thought that maybe someone was trying to kill her. And if you Isn't there go a, back, a, an easier way to do this? Uh, you know, poison their food. Uh, you you know, you pay off the coroner so that they, the, you know, the findings are negative. The toxicology reports are negative. It seems like a, it's it's so fraught with complications and and the possibility that something could go wrong. Well, certainly, people people you know, hundreds of years ago were poisoned. Um, you know, some people say Prince Albert was poisoned. Other people say he died of diphtheria. Um, but I think nowadays, you know, poisoning would show up. Toxicology tests are pretty sophisticated. But uh, an automobile accident in Paris, you know, at the height of the tourist season, eh, it's, it's probably far more doable. You know, she was, but the the difference being that she was in excellent shape. She might not have lived, she might not have survived that long had she not been in such extraordinary physical shape. But she worked out. She was very careful with her diet. I mean, just look at her. Plus, she was a big, strapping woman. This is not some tiny, petite person. I mean, she was almost six feet tall. She was, right. She was Do you- big. Do you think that that Harry and William suspect something? Oh, sure, but they can't say anything. If they if they say or do anything, they'll be out that orbit forever, and their own lives at risk. That that much is clear. You know, the royal family is much bigger than one individual. It may be the queen, but it's really a system. It's a big system, and the system is known for eating its young. If the system wants, if the system feels that survival is at risk, it will eat the young. And, you know, frankly, Prince William and Prince Harry, again, royals, they're not the brightest people on the block. 
they're not astrophysicists. They're not, they're not even really capable of earning their own living. I mean, if they had to get a job tomorrow, what would they be? You know, even their helicopter pilot jobs seem kind of curious. Um, you know, they wouldn't really be able to support themselves. And How you can get, you function as a human being knowing that your father or your grandfather is responsible for the death of your mother? That would drive a normal person to drink. You have to repress a lot. And, of course, you know, they got even in a way. They chose spouses who were problematic. I wouldn't go as far to say unsuitable. But, you know, here's the other thing, too, because it's not just up to them. Aristocrats saw what happened to Diana. I mean, initially, when the marriage happened, aristocrats were thrilled that he had chosen, you know, an English girl, and a, a real aristocrat, daughter of an earl, and that made everybody in the land happy. But then when they saw how she was treated, and of course she wrote this very lurid book, you know, her true story about, you know, suicide attempts and people were very cruel to her and Charles had a mistress and, you know, the average aristocrat has a daughter and they don't need the royal family anymore. They have their landed communities. It's not like they're dependent on the king like they were 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. I mean, aristocrats don't want to surrender their daughters anymore to someone who's going to mistreat them. And I think that was communicated. You know, that Diana may have had her faults, but she was very mistreated, and she was sensitive, and she was young. And so all of a sudden, aristocrats closed their doors to William and Harry. They didn't, uh, they weren't allowed. So, you know, was kind of discouraged. And Fascinating. So they, Fascinating. Yeah. So they, That's they, why they, they were forced to choose commoners. Yeah, I think so. They, they took, of course, the commoner pool is huge. You know, and Prince Harry was all over the place. He was, he was you know, playing pool naked in Vegas, jumping in the swimming pool. You know, at some point you could just say, well, that's hijinks. But, you know, they, there are photos of them running around London, really drunk, messed up on drugs, quite obvious. Well, I, mean, they, I, I can't lot. blame them. Growing up in no. that family, knowing what they know, perhaps. Sarah, uh, we are out of time, but uh, a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Royal Vengeance, available at Amazon and good bookstores everywhere. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert, and Ryan, of course. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.